Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this week's sponsors before the incredible conversation I had with Dan held well over a month ago at this point. But I think uh, the conversation still uh, is fresh today because we talked about Bitcoin's security and the future of Bitcoin security post uh, block reward uh, issuance cycle. Um, but before we hop into that great conversation, uh, we got to give a shout out to our sponsors this week. Cash App, you freaks already know all about them. Uh, they're the number one app in, uh, excuse me, the number one finance app in both app stores for the last two years. The first P2P payments app to give you freaks the ability to buy Bitcoin. Uh, and they also have the incredible boost program. So you get a boost card, you, uh, you personalize it with your signature with something uh, that you like, the lightning bolt, a Bitcoin thing. And then you get the card and you go use it at certain merchants like DoorDash, uh, Chick-fil-A, Whole Foods, Taco Bell, I believe Subway's on the list now. The list goes on. Uh, you save a little bit of money. You can stack sats. And now, here at TFTC, we officially have a promo code. And the promo code is stacking sats. So if you have not downloaded the Cash App yet, use the promo code stacking sats. You will receive $5. And then another $5 will be, will be sent to a charity of our choice. We're still deciding which charity. It may be Bitcoin-related. It may not be Bitcoin-related. I've uh, been involved with some nonprofits in the past that I would like to support, but we're open to ideas. So if you freaks have any Bitcoin specific nonprofits that you'd like to do, like us to help donate to, let us know. We'll look into them and go download the Cash App today at the Google Store or Apple Play, or at the Google Play Store, or Apple App Store. Um, we also get to give a huge shout out to Unchained Capital, uh, our other sponsor for this episode. Unchained is doing incredible things. In the custody and loan world with Bitcoin, they're allowing you to use your Bitcoin as collateral to take out uh, U.S. dollar-denominated loans, so you do not have to sell your Bitcoin. Friends do not let friends sell Bitcoin, and that is why Unchained exists. And on top of that, again, they're really um, focused on security as well, so their latest pro product, uh, the Vaults product, is a two- or three multi-sig solution uh, that allows you to, to control two or three keys and sign a multi-sig transaction via their vault whenever you need to and if you need unchained or another third party they can step in and be the the second signature in the two or three scheme if you ever need that to happen um, so go check out unchained's vault program today at www.unchained-capital.com slash vaults that's www.unchained-capital.com slash vaults if you sign up today you're going to get three months free of Safedina mooses the bitcoin standard research bulletin High quality information for free. The Unchained folks are hooking that up. So go check out Unchained today. And I hope you freaks enjoy this episode with Dan Held. What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here at the final interview of uh, of Blockchain Week here in New York City. It's been a hell of a Jesus, at this point, it's been like 10 days, 9, 10 days um, with Magical Crypto Conference, Consensus, and then the festivities afterwards. I'd like to reintroduce you freaks to a man who's already been on this podcast. Uh, welcome back, Dan Held. Dan, how you doing? Thanks for having me, Marty. And I think in dog year, you know, crypto is like, it's like a dog years. So 10 days is actually more like, it's like 70 days. Yeah. That's what it feels like. I'm, I'm feeling pretty haggard right now. Pretty haggardly. Uh, I feel like I've, I've, I've taken a couple years off my life. This 
it, it feels a little better that we're on a sunny, beautiful roof with a Bloody Mary in our hands. I think that definitely makes the week uh, a little bit easier to uh, digest. Yes, yes. We had that We had that ended out in style. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful Sunday afternoon here in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, we're on the roof enjoying some Bloody Marys. We got some uh, College of the Cross on silent in the background, Penn State versus Loyola. Uh, and we're here to talk about your most recent article that you dropped, Bitcoin security is fine. Yeah, it's uh, an important article that I wanted to bring to everyone's attention. I This is part of a series with my company called Interchange HQ, uh, is the website interchangehq.com. It's a new part of our series called the OnRamp, which is topics for institutional investors um, around different functionality of blockchains and, and crypto and Bitcoin. Uh, for example, some of my older articles are around like proof of work. Um, this one is around Bitcoin security model which is a really important topic that a lot of people have been very concerned about. The idea being that as Bitcoin's block subsidy, or newly minted Bitcoins, as that drops, as it becomes less of a percentage of the block reward, that Bitcoin will have to rely solely on transaction fees to fund its security. And there's a concern that the transaction fees won't be large enough to compensate miners and properly secure the network. Yes, this was a 20-minute article in a 68-tweet thread on Twitter, <laughs> if, uh, if you freaks haven't seen it yet. I apologize for everyone. Normally, I'm very succinct, and, and I was as succinct as I could possibly be. Um, it takes a lot. It, there's a lot of different pieces to touch when writing this. It's, uh, it, it's not, it was one of the most difficult articles I've written. Why was that? Yeah. It, well, it is very extensive, so why, well, how did you attack this? What... Uh, what was like the the first principles that you would attack and then go from? Well, there's a couple big components. Uh, one would be the uniqueness of Bitcoin's block space, that it is a prime real estate. It is not just any old real estate. It's not any old block space. It's prime and unique. So that's an entire section. The price elasticity of transactors is another section. So how much will people be willing to pay in transaction fees modeling what happens in the year 2140 or post post uh, block subsidy is that that's kind of a whole you know we had to build an excel model for that um looking at uh let's see what else there was you know in, in going down modeling out 2140 transaction fees and and what happens in a post subsidy environment you know you had to, i had to touch on topics like the block reward or sorry the block size <clears throat> which I'm not advocating for an increase. I'm just, I had to go, you know, re-dive down that rabbit hole and look at the, what the trade-offs, you know, I, it's been a little while since I had thought about it. So, um, let's see. Yeah, we had that. Um, there was also, yeah, modeling out. I had to work with a data scientist <clears throat> on modeling out, um, you know, long-term trends and when like the crossover where transaction fees will, you know, have a larger percentage of the block reward than the block subsidy. So a lot of different components. What, uh, so what's the most important part? Transaction volume picking up or, um, or the inflation rate of uh, Bitcoins being produced falling below a certain level where miners will demand uh, more fees? Yeah, so I'm not sure if there's any one singular most important topic, mm -hmm. but what I found interesting as I dug into it is that what the block reward really represents uh, when it's comprised because it's comprised of the block subsidy and transaction fees is that 
crossover where transaction fees eventually replace the block subsidy is really just an organic trade-off between increasing adoption and and it you know essentially as it becomes increasingly adopted then transaction fees will compensate and because of the halvening event as satoshi talks about <clears throat> you know when more people are chasing less supply the prices go up people fomo in price goes higher people hear about it we've seen these cycles along the halvening events bring in greater and greater awareness to bitcoin and so essentially each time the supply gets cut in half during the halvening events we have a supply shock where demand is chasing less supply and then the price goes up people fomo in and so as the block reward as the block subsidy decreases then we see with these these spikes and those spikes bring around greater awareness and adoption which increases transaction fees so it's sort of this nice organic trade-off where as the block subsidy drops more people become aware of Bitcoin through the bubbles, and then more people transact. Yes, and this is uh, something that I'm happy you highlighted and we were touching on right before we hit record, is uh, comparing uh, Bitcoin transaction fees to to um, uh, the transaction fees of other similar stores of value, whether it be real estate or gold, um, the, the movement fees, that it's, uh, the fees that you pay to move gold and whatnot. Um, and that's... Uh, Something we're trying to, we, me and you and a bunch of other, other people talk a lot about n- narratives and, and trying to fix broken narratives of the first decade. One of those being is low transaction fees. And so we're trying to convince people like, hey, yes, fees are going to rise, um, especially in U.S. dollar terms as the price of Bitcoin uh, rises because fees are in Satoshi's per byte. So the value of, of, of the tokens going up, so our fees just naturally and trying to to explain and convince people that this is okay. And I I really liked you comparing it to other store values. And that's a great way to frame it. Yeah, we can certainly look at uh, other stores of value and what people are willing to pay to transfer those stores of value as an appropriate price elasticity. And so, you know, unfortunately, we had this early cohort of Bitcoiners, uh, former Bitcoiners, now Bcashers, that, you know, wrongly believe that Bitcoin is for their cheap, cheap coffee payments. Um, which was not at all what what Satoshi, inten- uh, you know, in- what, not at all Satoshi's intention when he built something to disrupt central banks. So they they unfortunately kind of ruined, you know, they kind of ruined uh, public perception and expectations. Yeah, around. false assumptions. Right, and so people expected the cost to be zero, which doesn't make any sense because why should it be free? Um, and when something's used and, and valued, it's expecting it to remain free is kind of absurd. Um, so, yeah, as we look to the future, fees will increase. That is just going to happen um, due to its natural growth and adoption. And that will not hurt Bitcoin. It will be fine for Bitcoin because you shouldn't be using it for your coffee payments. You should be using Lightning for that. So we can look at other stores of value or other large, large value transfers to look at how much people are willing to pay or their price elasticity to send that money. So wire payments in the United States are between like fifty, or between like thirty and seventy dollars. That's a that's much higher than fees are now, and that's what almost everyone does when they wire money. Um, and that's on the lower bound of costs. We can look at gold, physical gold delivery, where you've got security guards and you've got insurance, and you have to you know, and then you've got all these other things you've got to do to deliver that gold, and that's really expensive. Donald McIntyre 
looked at how much it cost the Bundesbank when they repatriated. Ah, man. Repatriated. Repatriated. Yes, sorry. The the Bloody Mary's kicking in here. When they, yeah, when they brought their brought their gold back from the U.S., I think it cost them. Uh, I forget the number. I think it was four point two million. Yeah, it's like, like four point two million dollars. Um, so that's a very high price elasticity. And then I think one of the ones that that really really touches on how high people's price elasticity might be is real estate transactions. So the Chinese are buying forty billion dollars of U.S. real estate annually. We can uh, we can see some of it here that's being built right now as we look out into the into the skyline. Real estate is a very common store of value, as Connor Brown recently written recently wrote. Um, like I think twenty percent of some neighborhoods are solely used as store of value. Yeah, yeah. It's um, we can again like we we can look out at them right here, uh, and that's what I actually let's tangent on Connor Brown's uh, that intrinsic value article. It was really eye-opening in a, a different framing that I haven't heard before and it was just accepting the fact that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and this is actually good because it opens up uh, current stores of value that do have intrinsic value to actually uh, instead of being used as a store of value to go out and be productive goods. Yeah, Connor's, uh, Connor Brown kind of exploded on the scene recently and <laughs> really brilliant uh, law student from Stanford and I thought that article was, I, I've been in this space for seven years and never thought about it that way. I thought it was brilliant. Right. Um, that so so the TLDR is like that gold by having a dual purpose of being useful for both electronics and a store of value. The store of value use of that commodity actually is a net negative because then it displaces that 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 gold that could have been used in electronics. Similarly with real estate, we have all these unproductive or non-used real estate assets and all the concrete and all the materials used to build them. And so it's use, dual use as a living space and as a store of value. The store of value use case decreases its utility as a living space. And so Bitcoin having no other utility other than being a store of value is the most like efficient store of value out there. Exactly. And it, it got in, and Connor uh, dove into San Francisco and that real estate market in particular where you have uh, the residents who own the houses treating their properties as stores of value and not letting any more... Uh, real estate be built essentially, and this uh, this this causes some some perverse externalities. Oh yeah, I, I live in San Francisco, and the rent is the highest in the nation because people, the, the earlier older residents, it's kind of a Ponzi scheme. The older residents want to preserve their property values and are stopping all building from happening, and so now there's perverse incentives because properties are being used as a store of value that thwart the essential growth of an entire generation. So yeah, we're seeing really perverse effects of people using commodities or other assets as a dual purpose store of value and then its original utility. Yeah, no, it's, uh, again, shout out Connor for, for bringing that framing to the fore because it really is like, oh shit. Like imagine if we were, we're using gold to get to space to, to mine <laughs> asteroids to make gold basically used uh, completely priceless at, at that point but like also would help us explore space more like we can open up these these commodities for for things that can help us move into the future move into uh hopefully a type one civilization that's what we're going for we're trying to get to the moon right and and so yeah back to the uh original part about price elasticity so chinese transactors are willing to pay pretty high closing costs in the thousands of dollars 
to purchase this property. And by the way, if there's a trade war with China and Trump wants to, at the snap of his fingers, he could seize all these assets and call them illegitimate or something like that. So what is a price elasticity, a price elasticity for someone to transact in an immutable, hard to, almost impossible to seize asset? That's yeah. the that's, scenario does not seem too foreign to me or unpro- improbable, uh, especially in uh, especially in like the last climate of the last few weeks with the trade war heating up. And we've actually seen this already in Saudi Arabia with the, the Saudi Arabian government uh, freezing oh, yeah. the, uh, the account of one of the princes. He had like or eight the, billion dollars or something like that. Just, did, didn't the prince freeze the accounts of like all of the other like other princes, like the main yeah, guy? Yes. Yeah. Something happened where they got frozen out and billions of dollars just gone yeah what's a billionaire willing to pay to store their value somewhere right what's a what's an average person willing to pay to take their entire life savings out of a country yeah and so let's let's hop back into this conversation like how how do we make uh the masses comfortable with this do we make the masses comfortable with this or is it something uh, a quote-unquote problem that that'll get bitched about in perpetuity yeah, I mean, it's a lot about expectations. I think, you know, when I did my post-subsidy modeling, um, which Paul Storks actually came over to me and uh, complimented me on on some of the modeling. He, he liked it. Which awesome. I, that was kind of cool. I really respect Paul. I really respect Paul, too. I'm, I did not get to introduce myself at the blockstream party. I feel terrible. Yeah, he, he wrote an article about the declining block subsidy and had a different conclusion, but uh, he still, I think, liked a few things that I highlighted. Um but yeah, if you look at, if you model out Bitcoin's transaction fees for Bitcoin at 10, 10 to 100 trillion market capitalization, I mean, we're only looking, and then I also included a lot of assumptions, which were over 100, in, 100 years, we have, um, I think, yeah, I think it was like a, you know, 4x block size increase over 100 years. Some people are like, that's overly conservative. Some are like, you're out of your mind. That's crazy. I'm not advocating for a block size increase. I'm just, I Did plugged Luke it in. Did Dash Jr. yell at you? He said, no, we need smaller blocks. <laughs> he hasn't yet, but I'm sure he will. So, yeah. Um, I just, you know, just to get the conversation going, I plugged that in. Um, and then an increase in efficiency on layer one. And then modeled out. So, right now, we have a pretty interesting path or, or sort of a pretty pretty nice curve going in terms of transaction fees as a percentage of market cap. And so I use that to model out Bitcoin's long-term costs. That chart in particular, it is crazy how like uh, how the variance uh, around sort of the mean of like the, the slope at which like transactions are, are rising is, is pretty pretty smooth. But if you look at like over time, it's like up and down, up and down, very volatile. Right. It's uh, largely around market cycles. Yes. So as the price goes up, people start to trade more, people start to move their coins around. Um, but we are seeing established floors at the end of those cycles. And it's moving up very, very slowly. Um, but we are seeing those floors being established, which is good. So we're seeing a nice trend. And that long-term trend points to transaction fees costing, in aggregate, 0.001% of Bitcoin's market cap daily. So annually, that's 0.365. And you come to the conclusion that uh, the security spend in the hundreds of billions, correct? Yeah. So Not an exact number, but... Yeah. At $10 trillion, you're looking at a security spend of $36 billion annually. At $100 trillion, you're looking at a $365 billion security spend, which, is, which I think is very, very strong. Um, 
I highly doubt that a nation state will waste $360 billion and just burn it instead of taking the money. I mean, they have to respond to their citizens if they did that, right? So Yeah, so let's dive, dive into these, these game theoretical threat scenarios where a nation state tries to uh, 51% Bitcoin. Uh, one, it's expensive. Then two, the fallout socially seems to be uh, a heavy, heavy cost as well. Yeah, so to zoom out a little for a second before we dive into the nation state of cost, uh, nation state cost uh, estimate estimations or like game theory, you know what is an appropriate level of security spend? Um, Nick Carter highlighted it really well, which is is it stock flow or threshold? And I think it's not it's not flow because miners purchase these ASICs for long term uh, long term purposes, and as ASIC efficiency decreases over time due to the laws of physics because they can't make the chips any smaller. ASICs will be purchased for their longevity. So miners aren't going to play short-term games and try to gain the system for like a short-term payoff. They bought these machines and they need a cash flow for a very long time to make them profitable. So I think stock or a stock, a percentage of stock, which is what I modeled my charts after, what's the percentage of market cap that represents Bitcoin's security and also something I could model using historical data that I think eventually reaches a threshold level where it's just so improbable game theoretically that someone would attack it that we can basically say it's secure um and so what is that value we're not sure right it depends on what the market cap of bitcoin hits Mm -hmm. like the final hyper bitcoinization market capitalization yes and uh it um no it goes back to that conversation that we're having earlier is if people sort of realize that the the current assets they're using for source of value, whether it be gold or real estate, sort of have uh, opportunity cost by using them as a store of value and, and they, they come to adopt Bitcoin as the only store of value. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting because it would have to eat up most of the most of those market caps and it's Yeah, I mean gold's a what's a six point five trillion market cap. You got the classic gold plus fiat money which is fifty to hundred trillion and then real estate two hundred fifty trillion market cap. Well we were um, we were. Uh, I was telling you about how I interviewed David Bailey uh, this week, um, earlier this week, and I love his his uh, his TAM, his total addressable market. He's like anybody thinking like stores of value, like hundred trillions, like real estate, uh, gold, stock market, whatever it may be. He's like thinking too small. Like the total addressable market is is the cost of all the energy in the world <laughs> 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 on a long enough timeline. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got some kind of zanier ideas in terms of really out there market caps, but uh, I don't want to be labeled as like a lunatic. Yeah, let's let's tame our expectations. But yeah, exactly. It could uh, it could be a lot bigger than we expect, right? And uh, what are what are people willing? I mean, how many people are willing to store their at, their value, their store time and energy, which yeah. is their money, and something that's immutable and, and hard to seize? Well, again, to bring David back into it is like his analogy really opened my eyes. Like when the internet was created, if you were to tell people that it would uh it would record more information in one day than ever was recorded in human history up until the point that the internet was created people would be like fuck you that's crazy there's no way oh totally yeah just to just to pull out a cell phone in 1990 to pull out like an iphone people's minds would have just exploded yeah it would have been unfathomable like whoa this is crazy magic so when we when we think about uh, projecting Bitcoin's total addressable market in the future, and we're, we're thinking of these constraints that that we live under now. Just think about the constraints that people are putting on the internet and how 
how how much that exceeded their expectations. Yeah, and also, I mean, y- when you think about it, like when people buy into Bitcoin, they have to buy it from the hodlers. So it's not going to be a linear, you know, you're not just going to transfer $100 trillion and put that into Bitcoin. As you buy up, as you buy, as, as those, those uh, other world assets flow into Bitcoin, the price goes up. Yeah, and I think I just saw actually a tweet updating us on hodlways. 60% of UTXOs have not moved in over a year. Yeah, so good good luck. <laughs> right. Good luck transferring your trillions into Bitcoin. I mean, it's not people aren't going to willingly part for it at spot. You know, it's going to go up a bit. Yeah, yeah. But let's bring it back to uh, security. How we attain that? Like, what drives demand for fees? And um, one thing I is we've brought this concept up before on this podcast, but I want to let's expound upon it more. On this episode in particular is Jevons' paradox, and uh, so basically the uh, utility of layers or services built on top of Bitcoin driving demand for, for the under, under, um, the underlying resource, which is block space. So, yeah. So, and to kind of make sure everyone's following us here, cause this can be complicated. You know, Bitcoin has block space every 10 minutes. There's new block space to bid on and people pay transaction fees in order to get their transaction in the block. And so, you know, what's, uh, in terms of the, you know, can we, will, will people use Bitcoin's block space? Will it be unique? Will there be demand to use it? So we, we've touched on the price elasticity of what people are willing to pay uh, for a store of value use of that block space real estate. Um, so to kind of touch on, you know, we can, we can talk about the, uh, the density of that block space. So as Nick Carter puts it, we can increase the, uh, economic and semantic density so uh, semantic I'll just touch on for a second which is like Veriblock where they use Bitcoin's block space to root their own blockchain into Bitcoin's blockchain and have that thermodynamic guarantee of uh, a certain state has been validated at a certain time with uh, with economic density we're talking about things like lightning so you know lightning when you open and close a channel those are two transactions on on layer one um, how much economic density is included in that is essentially all of the activity that happened on layer two in that channel. So um, block space in the future, the demand for it, uh, and we're already seeing some of this now, will be driven by these other layers and these other other economic and semantic more dense things rather than just a transaction. Yes, and the crux of Jevons' paradox is that people leveraging the scarce resource, which is, again, the scarce resource and in this uh, scenario is block space. So lightning uh, takes up that space by opening and closing channels, Veriblock by hashing data into the Bitcoin blockchain. And the cr- one uh, we talked about a crazy chart earlier. The craziest chart in my mind was the lightning channel uh, activity yeah. on, on chain. Like, yeah, there was a block with 25% of the block was uh, opening and closing lightning channels. Right. That's pretty nuts. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and lightning is still very much experimental. So that I thought that was incredible. Yeah, there's a worry. So a lot of people have argued, oh, well, lightning will suck away transactional demand on layer one. And so that's where Jevons paradox comes in. Whereas lightning makes Bitcoin more efficient because you can move more money on layer two and sort of the net value between those two parties on layer two, that net value is printed on layer one. Um, And people are like, oh, well, that's just going to suck up all the transactional demand from layer one. But that's definitely not the case because we haven't seen that happen, even though Lightning is 25% of some blocks. We, through Jevons Paradox, we know this not to be true as well in the real world, where 
as miles per gallon for cars became more and more efficient, so cars became more fuel efficient, more miles were driven. You know, people don't use less of something because it becomes more efficient. They usually use more of it because it becomes more efficient. And so Lightning will drive increasing demand because it makes Bitcoin more efficient and more open to other use cases rather than decrease layer one. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen data show that Bitcoin's doing just fine with Lightning taking up 25% of blocks. Jevons paradox shows us in other areas that we know that efficiency increases usage rather than decreases it. And finally, uh, Bitcoin transactions on layer one cost, uh, it's, you know, it's Satoshi's per byte, which is about size of uh, you know, the data size. Layer two is about the size of the value. So there's a, there's a crossover point eventually to where it's actually more advantageous to move your transaction on layer one, depending on how big the value is. Yeah, there's an ebb and flow to yin and yang there, and it's all based off the assurances of the protocol level and, and sort of leveraging that to create utility. And Bitcoin is proving to be useful but and one of my favorite sort of thought experiments that uh revolves around jevin's paradox of uh bitcoin that's created uh, via bitcoin and lightning in their relationship in particular this is something i talked to uh pierre about before pierre richard about before is uh the potential for uh the bitcoin protocol level to become like a quasi rhystone system where uh you you do on-chain transactions very very rarely but Everything's moved to um, sort of lightning, and so this is going to be, be blasphemous to some big blockers and and, uh, and purists <laughs> out there. But it's a it's an interesting thought experiment to think about because, as we're discussing with Jer- Jevons paradox, uh, depending on um, the value going through lightning network, like you could potentially see it developing into a rhinestone system like system uh, in the future, and, and is that okay? Yeah, I think that's totally fine. I mean, what's nice about all this is it's it's an organic, it's a very organic sort of system to where the market will dictate it. And I think that's what's so brilliant about a lot of these decisions because these these decisions were largely the market will decide, which is great because I believe in capitalism being the ultimate decider for how to allocate capital and how systems are built because everyone's financially motivated and incentivized in the right way to do it so do it that way there is no central point of control there shouldn't be a central point of control in capitalism because inherently there's a data problem you can't can ingest enough data points in order to make decisions for the economy so bitcoin is largely going hey well we're just going to let the system do what it wants to do we're just here to like bitcoin bitcoin sort of like software and rules that have been set up are like largely just a framework yeah and bitcoin doesn't even know how we're using we're yeah, it doesn't know how we're using it. It's just like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. You guys use it the way you see fit, and the totally. market will figure that out, right? Totally. And I, I think like the TLDR of my piece is essentially people are worried like, oh, will Bitcoin security be enough? And I'm like, well, if people don't use Bitcoin, then it's dead anyways. So the security doesn't matter. Like if Bitcoin isn't being used for large stores of value and there's not like increased transactional demand on layer two, like then it's a failed experiment, right? And so worries about what happens in a hundred years when the subsidy runs out. I'm like, well, if it hasn't like very much succeeded in the next couple of decades, I think it'll be largely as failed. I think I will, I will perceive the experiment as failed. When, uh, when do you think, uh, so let's talk about the mechanics of the distribution of, of the quote unquote reward. So the reward is the combination of the block subsidy, which is dictated by the protocol right now. It's 12 and a half Bitcoin per 10 minutes. And, uh, the reward is the subsidy plus the fees and the fees are dictated by the market again, depending on, uh, the demand for block space at any given point in time. Um, so 
there will be so there will be a point in the future where um, the the subsidy and fees will have to reach parity, and eventually fees will have obviously have to overtake uh, the subsidy. Uh, this has happened before in 2017. Uh, yeah, 17 in December, there was a block where the reward and the the, the fees were. The fees were above twelve and a half Bitcoin. Yeah, the transaction fees in, in a certain block in twenty seventeen was were larger than the block subsidy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've already seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but when when does that have to become consistent? Do you think? Yeah. So with the modeling that we've seen done, again, the transaction fees are very uh, fluctuate quite a bit given the market cycles, the bear and bull market cycles. And so, but we do see floors being established. And so, I'd recommend checking out the article where these nicely designed charts by Awe and Wonder. Uh, he did a great job. They're really, really slick. Right. Um, I, he's one of my favorite chartists in the space. I think that's the right way to put it. Like chartists. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just like an anon providing this. Like I don't know his real name. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I don't know his real name. And we did the whole thing over Twitter DMs. So this is, this is how the spa- <laughs> this is what blows my mind about the space. I that was blows my mind about this week is apparently there are some people I've been wanting to meet online and I was in the <laughs> same room with them but was not introduced. I was like, what the fuck, Mr. Hoddle? Yo, oh, he was there. Because I was at the was, same yeah. party you were Mr. at the Hoddle, blockstream. If you're listening to this, I'm pissed that you did not uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, I ran, I ran into a lot of people I wanted to see, but yeah, I didn't see Mr. Hoddle. That would have been awesome. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. It would have been. But yeah, you know, I think the uh, a lot of the concern, you know, with the, the blocks, you know, the essentially like people were like, oh, and then I, I think a couple other important things to touch on here uh, would be, you know, <clears throat> is blocks is Bitcoin's block space unique? A lot of people go, oh, well, in 2017, uh, consumers were, you know, trying to route payments based on cheap, much cheap fees. So I, I fundamentally dismantle this argument piece by piece. Um, yeah, compared to Litecoin. Yeah. So so here's the way to think about it. Is blocks, Bitcoin's block space just any old real estate or is it prime real estate? And it is very much the most prime real estate you could possibly want. And so Bitcoin is prime real estate for four reasons. It's due to uh, tra- so when when you look at block space, it's useful. It, its uniqueness is based on transaction cost, coordination cost, security cost, and volatility cost. So users in 2017, transactors in 2017, were not simultaneously looking across Bitcoin's block space, Bcash's block space, Litecoin's block space, and simultaneously looking at like exchange, like slippage. Uh, looking at transaction fee and volatility fee. So how much is it going to fluctuate over your time period? And volatility fee, by the way, has a nasty, nasty problem. Because as your transaction value goes up, the the volatility becomes increasingly more painful. So a $100 transaction that fluctuates 10% will cost you $10 versus a $10 transaction that fluctuates 10% will cost you $1. So users were not simultaneously scanning across all these block spaces, evaluating all of those factors, and then routing their payment. That's fucking bullshit. (laughs) To be frank. And on top of that, you have capital gains tax that you would have to pay on the switching costs as well. Yeah, let's say it goes up in value instead of decreases in value. Well, now you own capital gains on that. So (laughs) people aren't aren't mentally doing that. No one was doing that in 2017. What was really happening is that, you know, there wasn't the meme of Bitcoin's transaction fees were increasing. Therefore, people sought out other block spaces. Completely false. People were just doing degenerate trading. People weren't simultaneously scanning across all those block spaces and routing it based on my cheap transaction fees think of the uh the mental costs that come with that model where where you're where you're uh purveying the the field of alternatives uh from a fee perspective to bitcoin it's it's just especially if you if you 
think about mass adoption and applying it to to quote unquote normies who we expect like they're not going to think this way. Yeah, as Connor Brown puts it, multi coinery is barter. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps coming up. He keeps coming up. But it was a good. I had that quote in my article because I thought it was really well placed. You know, it's it is barter. It is barter. Otherwise, you, you're not solving the coincidence of wants problem. That's why, like, yeah, that's why the the ICO craze never meant it like, meant it made any sense to me. Excuse me. Um, Vak is kicking in pretty heavy here. Dare to uh, defy. <laughs> Dare to <laughs> <laughs> but it, it never made sense to me because just as a quasi, like, as somebody who views himself as a a dumb a dumber user or or not as not an expert level when it comes to using all this stuff, I, I just thought like there's no way anybody's going to interact with the their world like trying to go token to token to token for for every service and quote-unquote app they use like i only use three apps really uh like every day and that's twitter spotify and a couple other things like thinking that you're gonna use these new token apps and insert them in your life just never made sense to me because of the the mental costs that come with it totally and you know to play devil's advocate i'll defend the other side a little bit so some argue that oh we could obfuscate all of these other coins. So we just put a GUI in between you and that. Interoperability, bro. Yeah, or like we auto-sell your taco coin for your beer coin. But the problem with that is then you have to have an order book for every single one of these coins, and there's no way that order book's going to be as liquid as Bitcoin. Bitcoins will be for you know big fiat pairs. So you're going to have increased slippage costs for every single transaction, which doesn't make any sense. Um, it increases complexity, it increases slippage, and increases friction when people transact. And if it were ever become a thing, it would just increase uh, systemic risk because you have to have market makers step in to create those markets, and it would it would yeah for every like Whopper coin, Taco coin, yeah. vodka coin it doesn't make any sense. No, you you want one store value that's also unit of account where everyone's mentally you know as humans, intuitively they're just going to stick exactly. to a couple. What makes the most sense is you can walk around the fucking world and scan a QR code and spend Bitcoin wherever like not have to worry about if it's Whopper coin or whatever you just know totally no matter where you are somebody eventually at some point in the future all merchants uh, will will be able to provide you with a QR code that you know like hey here here's some Satoshi's from the Lightning Network I mean let's let's get like real fun with it I mean in the future when Bitcoin's a unit of account which is a long time from now we ain't gonna be using QR codes we're gonna just like look at something and buy it <laughs> 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 uh, facial recognition has been a uh, been a hot topic on the pod podcast recently. Ooh, what uh, what what came up about that? No, it's just that we uh, rabbit hole recap this week with Bitcoin Sign guy. He joined us and we talked the the subject of facial recognition technology being um, deployed in the UK in particular because there was a story of the man this week who was uh, walking down the street in London and the cops warned him, hey. Uh, ahead here, we're, we're doing facial recognition, just to let you know, and he did not like that, so he put his sweatshirt above his face and tried to walk by, and he was stopped because he would not participate in the facial recognition, and he was fined 90 pounds. It's obviously uh, a sign that uh, our civil liberties are being encroached on, and the surveillance states grows, And but then you get into the little conversation of, Bitcoin sign guy actually brought this up, like, yes, it's overt right now, like, they're they have vans with cameras on top that are looking for people, but as the uh, the increase of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the increase of sort of uh, resistance and 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 from citizens becomes 
becomes more intense, they'll just use cameras like iPhone cameras and put them on places where you, where they're imperceptible. So basically coming to the conclusion that the surveillance state is probably inevitable and that we should, uh, we should be focusing on technologies that do preserve our, our individual sovereignty and, and freedom. And that's like Bitcoin presents one of those opportunities. So if, uh, if facial recognition and being spied on 24 seven is gone, we should, we should focus on things that we can. Totally. You know, big <clears throat> Bitcoin fundamentally is about freedom and to be able to in money, I would argue is one of the most important things in the world because it represents that store time and energy, you know, it really represents your retirement account represents your entire lifetime of working of sacrificing time and energy to earn that. So the preservation of that, I think, will bleed into other things like privacy, like from the state. As citizens withhold that stored time and energy from the state, the state will have to give them liberties or whatever they like in return to give up some of that stored time and energy. Yeah, and we got into the the concept of uh, surveillance-free zones and and people willing to pay taxes to to, uh, have that luxury be a reality. We'll pay for it, right? Um, it's crazy. It's, uh, we've never lived in a, again, obviously the, the arc of human history and human progress is up and to the right. And we're always at the, the cusp of, of the, the, uh, the pinnacle of man, um, being, being alive in the present, but it is crazy how, uh, how much information is being consumed. Like again, going back to the internet, being able to produce more history in one day and record more history in one day than was ever recorded up until 1997. Um, it's crazy. And, and dealing with the consequences of that, that change psychologically, chemically, socially is something we're coming to grips with. And privacy is a tough problem because how many people use VPNs? I mean, we, I don't use it every day. I should, but I don't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty easy to use. Right. It's a uh, shout out, um, Molvad VPN. I've been using that. It's very, uh, very oh, nice. intuitive, very paying Bitcoin and it, it's Ooh. just automatically on all the time. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's hard though. You know, like people get and people outcry whenever they, and people cry out whenever they see like Facebook and other companies infringing on their privacy, but they continually give it to the state because they still believe the state is in working in their best interest where we see like the, well, they're not, um, <laughs> it, let's put it this way. If the CIA and NSA were thwarting terrorist attacks, we'd be, we'd be hearing about it all the time. They'd be like, hey, we're here. We're still here. We're saving your life. But we don't because they think it's an extremely low interest right now. Yeah. Um, and think about the TSA has a 95% failure rate. Exactly. So if anyone was motivated, it w- would have easily happened. A TSA. Or how about outside the airport or anything uh, else? You know, people are willing to sacrifice all of their privacy and freedoms for this largely illusionary sort of security by the state, which I think in the future there'll be cracks in that facade where people will realize the state is not actually providing them really any security. It's yes, if anything, they're harming people, right? The TSA yeah. is, is a big uh, big driver of anxiety and, and uh, mental anguish for your boy Marty because they are the most incompetent uh, organization, most unnecessary organization. Like, why do we have the TSA at the airport? Not the train stations. Not that I want them at the train stations. Please do not bring the TSA to the train or stations. How about the ferries? The ferries. The boats, it's, it's like trains, false equivalency. Bus. I'm convinced that the TSA and airport security is just a testing ground for the U.S. government to see how much people will put up with. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist. However, I do agree to some extent that, like, 
it is sort of testing our willingness to put up with crap like that, right? Like, and in, if you had done that in 1950, there'd be fucking people rioting on the streets, right? You know, but we're sort of like the frog in the pot of boiling water, where, you know, same with the economy. You know, our private, you know, privacy and our freedoms have slowly been eroded to where like people are like, oh, but I trust the government, and you know, people kind of forgot why we're here and why America was great to begin with, which is about freedom. And then we're slowly seeing that happen with the economy where now like the whole economy isn't even looking at fundamentals anymore or risk. It's they're just looking at the, they're it's just looking at the Fed. It's they're, all about asset flows stemming yeah. from the Fed, right? They're right. just going like, well, what's the Fed going to do? What's Trump going to do? And I'm like, that shouldn't matter <laughs> at all. The economy should not give a shit. What the, I mean, well, sure, the, they play some effect, but like that, they should not be the driving effect of the economy. It should be largely a you know, capitalist system where like people are assessing risk and allocating capital versus like going, oh, what's the central policy maker doing? Yeah, it's, it shouldn't be whether or not is Trump going to tweet this morning or... Totally, yeah. Yeah, and, and if we have people in that sort of position of power, we should look to, you know, create systems where we don't have one man or woman with all that power. It's it's obno- it's obnoxious and ancient and, and kind of ridiculous. Uh, a great poet we know as Kanye West said it best, no one man should have all that power. Um I was going to try to beatbox here real quick, but I, I'm too I'm too white for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try it. Either. Yeah, I thought about it for a second. I, I thought like, about it, and then I was I like, about oh, it too. It's going like, to be yeah. it's going to it's going to sound bad. Yeah, the vodka beats are not not as great as uh, the tequila beats. We'll say that. <laughs> you know, coming from Texas, the uh, tequila style. You know, that's 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 my jam. Are you uh, tequila neat? Tequila shots? Tequila you, neat? Yeah. Oh yeah, I like to appreciate it. Right? Same with whiskey. Yeah. Like on a big cube is preferable. Like one big cube. I don't want it to be diluted that much. It is more of I want it like a little cooler so I can appreciate the flavor. Yes. Otherwise, the burning of it kind of like overwhelms the flavor of the flavor profile. Some people probably, a lot of like aficionados think I'm probably a, I think I'm probably a heretic for saying that, but I think I, I can taste it a little bit more when it cools down a little bit. What's your, uh, what's your favorite tequila? Um, you know, so let's see. Uh, Florida Lisa is pretty awesome. Um, it's kind of my go-to. And uh, let's see. Yeah, Florida Lisa is probably like my go-to go-to. And then on the whiskey side, uh, you know, I've got uh, like Japanese whiskey, like Nika Coffee Grain. Fell in love with that. It's mm. so nice. I love Japanese whiskey, too. It's nice and nice and smooth and beautiful. But, you know, like if I'm out Yosemite campfire, I want like a nice Macallan 12 you know, so maybe something a little smoky, a little peaty. What's uh, what's the Yosemite campfire like? Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, you've I've got never like, been to Yosemite. I've been oh. told I need to go. I need to go. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, you got these like you're in like a gorgeous valley, and you've got like beautiful redwood tree trees. Um, perfect sort of weather, uh, and you know you got a fire going. You've got a glass of really nice scotch. You know, it just that that's what scotch was made for. It's like being by a fire. That sounds like the way to live. Well, when Bitcoin hits a hundred thousand in my library, we'll have we'll also nice scotch <laughs> <laughs> by the fire. That's what we'll record episode number maybe twenty or something between us by that by that point. Yeah, we should do this. Uh, we're we're on pace for semi annually right now. Um, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. The last time was like over six months ago, right? I think it was just about six months ago. I think it was like October, November last year, right? Yeah, and we did drink whiskey that time. We did. Yeah, because Matt was Matt was over. Matt Odell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Uh, oh, we did a double back to back, right? We recorded, then we did a rabbit hole recap, and you you uh, you busted out of there to go on a rickshaw date. 
a rickshaw date. Let's see. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a dinner date that night. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, no. Well, speaking of Bitcoin, a hundred thousand. That's uh, that's another thing. It's been more at the top of my head more recently. Like it seems again, bear market. Everything trends back towards Bitcoin. The the gravity of Bitcoin sort of sucks everything back in, back to fundamentals. We've got lacrosse on here in the background. If you're if you're a lacrosse player, you know if you're getting back on defense, you get you get back to the hole and then you expand from there. So uh, in the the Bitcoin alt uh, markets, we're we're at the point where everything is uh, getting back into the hole, getting back into Bitcoin. But with that being said, like the question that that comes to people's mind is how many alt cycles are going to have? How intense are they going to be? Are we going to have returns like Ethereum's ICO going forward? I'm not as convinced that's going to keep happening because I do think there is a level of of competence and and understanding in the general market and and brand recognition of Bitcoin uh, is growing stronger as well. That that I think a hundred thousand is like not that far off. You know, Bitcoin, the seed of Bitcoin survived all the way to here, which is incredibly bullish. Uh, a lot of things could have killed it. Flippinines, uh, civil war with Bcash, um, <clears throat> you know, businesses trying to insert some of their bias in the consensus mechanism, um, you know, in terms of like protocol upgrades, you know, Segwit 2X. Bitcoin survived a lot. Um, transaction fee FUD, 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 FUD. I mean, every type of FUD you could Flippity possibly imagine. FUD. Can you imagine when people get positive about Bitcoin? Like the mm-hmm. like journalists are like, oh, Bitcoin's a great thing. Can you imagine? <laughs> like so. They just need to start buying it and then they'll start writing that. <laughs> <laughs> someday, someday. They're all pre-coiners right now. But yeah, I think the recent market activity is something that's, a, I think, a great topic, uh, which I think two things we can touch on, one being like alt season and then the other being Bitcoin being the risk-off trade. Let's dive into it. Yeah, so alt season is something people like everyone. Which, by the way, if everyone's thinking that the market might do that, it probably is not going to. It's probably not going to do that because otherwise, it already would have happened in anticipation of everyone thinking that it might happen. For example, in San Francisco, there was a, an article that came out about the newly minted millionaires from Uber, Lyft, and other IPOs. Well, people were like, "Oh my God, you know, uh, housing prices are going to skyrocket because of all these newly minted millionaires." I quickly Google it and I check SF housing prices, flat. People would have already bought in anticipation of those millionaires being minted if people thought that was going to be a thing. So it must not be a thing if the market's not reacting to it. The market is the ultimate information absorber and reflects everything in the market. So if alt season is going to happen, we should be seeing it, which we saw a little pump from something uh, from like Ethereum and a few of the other day. But a lot of people don't realize that a lot of, you know, on, on Twitter, when you hear these so-called experts talk about alt season they're being extremely intellectually dishonest because none of them are going back to 2014 the first altcoin boom and comparing uh, returns from 2014 through 2018 no one is doing that which is your largest uh it's your longest data set and your largest data set because there was a wave of altcoins back in 2014 including like dogecoin it was one of the in that cohort but they're not doing that they're looking at 2016 to 2018 and so I think you should look at both data sets. We should look at all available data, but especially the longest running data set. Um, you know, we've got more time to evaluate what happens when alts rise and fall. Yeah. 2013, 2014 alt cycle was all about uh, proof of stake, multi-algo uh, mining. Uh, oh, yeah. Like Corecoin. Yeah, Corecoin. And there's Primecoin, which did something useful with the proof of work because it found prime numbers. Mm-hmm. I actually mined a whole block of Primecoin back in the day. Really? 
Yeah. So I hope I don't get crucified for this. You know, I look, I'm a Bitcoiner, right? <laughs> <laughs> but look, I thought it was interesting. This is 2014, right? We're experimenting. We're checking things out. And then later down the road, I'm like, well, proof of work is already doing something incredibly great. So <laughs> it doesn't need to do anything else. It's kind of a silly thing to do. But I realized that later down the road. No, but it's a, it's a perfect example of the, again, marketers, snake oil salesmen, if you will, attempting to, quote unquote, highlight uh, Bitcoin's perceived inefficiencies and, 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 uh, and add on them by spinning up a shit coin that quote unquote solves that problem. And early on in those days, it was, uh, people were worried about, uh, proof of work. So that they're in, and, uh, to be clear, I didn't buy any, by the way, I just mined it on my company's computers. Oh, that's the way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Get some clean prime (laughs) coin. Exactly. Exactly. But but it's like, uh, I wasn't about to give up my cold hard BTC for that. No, that's for sure. But it's actually, uh, it's funny. Like another one, another, famous early altcoin name coin was probably oh, yeah probably the best example of um an altcoin learning a hard lesson because they shared a scripting algorithm with bitcoin shot 256 and they found that uh these if you have scarce hardware you know, mining hardware in particular uh it's going to compete on the open market and and bitcoin obviously was was the winner in the shot 256 market and, and name coin became highly susceptible to to 51 percent attacks well i don't want to mess with bitcoin's black hole it's uh it'll suck you right in and crush you right yeah it's uh <laughs> i wouldn't want to wouldn't want to compete no and it, but it but it highlights the uh almost the naivety of these some of these projects i i don't, I, I try to uh assume that they're more naive than malicious right yeah. yeah i think it's more naive than malicious but also like if they spent a couple of weeks really reading into it they'd realize it's kind of bullshit but essentially what happens is with the 2014 altcoin bubble and the 2017 2016 like ico bubble it was just uh, a black shoals model of all probabilistic mm-hmm. narratives so like you want uber coin sure we got that you want lyft coin we got that too you want airbnb coin sure you want a decentralized identity management on xyz you want healthcare on the blockchain we got that so essentially, whatever meme you wanted to buy into, people made. Uh, twenty fourteen was a more primitive version of that, but twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen was a much more sophisticated, a lot more sophisticated, because the, the funding mechanism was uh, was a lot easier to spin up than uh, that was. That's actually the funny thing uh, comparing twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen was the scam. I don't, don't want to say scammers. The people launching these projects notice that because uh, that was the big thing in 2013 2014 was fair pow launches like that was on bitcointalk.org like that's what you looked for when these announcements were being made like is it a fair pow launch like are we going to be able to like point our miners at it exactly and then like the icos realize like let's not even fucking worry about that <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just sell these tokens straight up before well that's what's funny about uh you know grin is a recent example of that narrative because Grin kind of went back to the OG narrative of a fair launch. Yes. Which I wrote, one of my earlier articles is Bitcoin's dist- distribution was fair. A lot of people like to, you know, it, you know, say Bitcoin is equivalent to a stealth mine, which is completely false. Uh, Satoshi gave people a three months heads up, he, a three month heads up from the white paper to when he launched it. He, uh, he, he shared it with the only people that cared. You know, he didn't, he didn't just like... He didn't share it on an email list for dogs, right? Like he shared on the <laughs> on the cryptographer email, emailing the only email list of anyone who'd give a shit, right? Like who the hell is gonna? Who, people are like, oh, but he didn't like broadcast it on CNN. I'm like, 
no one would have cared. <laughs> and Bitcoin didn't have value for a year and a half anyways. No one valued it for... No one would have cared. Yeah. How the hell would he have gotten it on ESPN? Like, right. ESPN, CNN, wow. Well, and, and Grin highlighted the issue that like a fair launch is extremely difficult, and I would argue not replicable past Bitcoin's initial launch. It's just not... You can't do it again. And this is, this is just a, a product that there being way too many eyes on the space. Like, you cannot... Right. You cannot... Re- it's... I mean, we've talked about it. Like the, the immaculate conception is is cannot be reproduced. It is right, and, and that's that's something that scares people too. It's like, well, we should be able to compete. Like there was MySpace and there was Facebook, but it's this is something very unique and very ah, Bitcoin scares people. It does because it's like the, it's this rule set that's just not movable, and we're in a world of like nothing is like. So a lot of things are permanent, but we can usually change the rules if we don't like things. That and, and, and what scares people more is that they're, it's not like the most efficient in their in many people's eyes, the most efficient like technology that could could exist for for this use case. And that it's like people don't understand um, that like working with what we got with Bitcoin is more advantageous than trying to to create something perfect from scratch. Yeah, exactly. Like. Bitcoin is a you know equivalent to a rocket launch. Like we got everything right. It got off the launch pad. You know, it's it's like fifty miles up in the air. It didn't explode yet. And people are like, oh, but what if we change the fins? And I'm like, fuck, man. I, <laughs> look, look, it's working. Like it's magnificent. The fact that it's ten years along, created by a pseudonymous founder, with no market making, with no like largely just a, a forum of Bitcoin talk of, of a some tiny group of believers, a tiny, tiny, tiny group of believers. The fact that it survived through that stage and got to where we are now, where like you've got Bank of America and Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank like writing articles about Bitcoin. Holy shit, that's awesome. And like Bitcoin's daily trading volume and market cap, fantastic. I, I am so excited we got this far. But it's there's something just inherent in humans that see again I've, this has been repeated ad nauseum on this podcast but bitcoin is slow dumb and arduous and that is okay it's simple and there's something about its simplicity that scares people or it's like oh you can only get 20 trans there's potential for 20 transactions per second like that's not a lot we need a million like there's blocks every 10 minutes why aren't they one yeah. minute there's there's uh, a fee market like why can't I mean, it be feeless 99 percent of those are people just memeing what they hear other people saying rather than like true experts digging in because true experts know that everything in life comes with trade-offs and so the true experts go well we could we could have more transactions per second but we'd give up some form of decentralization in some manner and so most people are just memeing what they hear from you know quote quote experts in this space cobra <laughs> cobra uh, I, that guy's got like bipolar disorder or something. I mean, he's he's all over the map. He or they have bipolar disorder. Yeah, it's a couple of people, right? Yeah, he, they, who, yeah, it, it's who knows a bot. Maybe it's a maybe it's a bot. We'll find out, Cobra. If you're listening, let us know. <laughs> let us know. But to kind of wrap up on alt season, let's say let's yeah, there are alt pumps, sure. But you're gonna time it right. You're telling me you're gonna sit there and you're gonna buy right when it's at the lowest, and then you're gonna sell right when it's at the highest. I'll let the experts do that. But as an individual, buying and hodling Bitcoin has outperformed every other crypto if you look at the return since exchange listing. Bitcoin outperforms Ethereum on that. Really? Yep. By magnitudes. So your best bet is to, and and also your highest probable survivable outcome of all these coins is Bitcoin. So That and also, all you freaks listening to this who are thinking about becoming expert traders, realize 
It's one of the most vicious, uh, vicious careers, vicious things you can do is trade and just literally the way the market dynamics work out only a very small percentage of those people are successful yeah so stay stay calm and huddle on exactly. it's uh i, I built accounting software for institutional traders those guys are the experts they're gonna stay up all night thinking about this you got you don't want to compete with these you guys have crazy mathematicians writing quant models that exactly are, you cannot compete with and then that's so that's why we we stress stacking sets here at tales from the crypt is i love stacking sets it's a great meme if if you Shout out Matt O'Dell. If you holla, <laughs> if you uh, if you believe in Bitcoin and you think it is something worth investing in, don't try to play the swings. Just stack sats. Uh, set a plan. It's not financial advice, but like create a plan and just stick to it. Don't get don't get all freaked yeah. out by the price movements and volatility. It's natural, but dollar cost averaging is the way to go. And I think a lot of people now look at the price and they're like, man, you know, eight thousand dollars is a lot of money. To anyone, I think. You know, it's a substantial sum. So back when I was in it, back way back in the day, you know, when I first told my dad about it, I remember it was Thanksgiving 2012. And he thought $10 was expensive. Because, <laughs> you know, he's thinking about it as a, he's not looking at the total number of units. He's looking at the per unit value, which the market cap is a more appropriate question, right? But uh, it's funny because, like, breaking dollar parity, then Bitcoin was perceived as expensive. And so it's always been, quote, too expensive. Um, so I think, look, like, when you look at the market capitalization of Bitcoin, what, what are we at now? What's the market cap, I think? We were, like, 120 and one, between 120 and 130, I believe. Yeah, I, I keep calm and hodl on, so I don't, I don't check it too much in terms of market cap. But I'll check right now. We had yeah, let's up. check it out. I, I don't think, you know, I originally bought Bitcoin back, way back because I believe that Bitcoin is gold 2.0, uh, or Bitcoin is a new store of value that will be um, an incredible value to people to allocate their wealth and, and preserve it. And so Bitcoin, I think, will not even have touched on its... Ooh, we're at 135, 135. 135, nice. Yeah. Bitcoin hitting a few trillion market cap, which is $100,000 of Bitcoin, that's Bitcoin barely touching on its original purpose, just barely touching on it, like like lightly tapping it, not even not even becoming its purpose, like a gold 2.0 or a store of value. That's incredible. I mean, the fact that 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 price movement from here is is many different many multiples. Good luck finding a, an equivalent return in the mainstream markets, unless you want to buy some like cannabis stocks, which are arguably pump and dump schemes. Well. I think it's hard for people to come to grips with the fact that these types of returns are, are possible, especially, so that's that's another thing. Is it too good to be true? Like, obviously, if Bitcoin were to grow into the total addressable market that we're discussing here, like, this price appreciation, it's inevitable, but, like, it's something we can sort of see right in front of us, and I, I think people are sort of scared, like, is it too good to be true? Like, there's no way um, it's that it's that easy. And, and for good reason. Most people, when they, when some, when their friends tell them about amazing 10x returns, they go, "Wait a second, what's the scam?" And, and most of the time, they're right. There's like typically a scam going on. Bitcoin trying to become a new money or a new store of value, its per, its pathway was not going to be linear. And in fact, Satoshi hard coded it in to not be linear. He wanted speculative bubbles because that brings around greater awareness. Satoshi fundamentally understood humans' primal nature, greed, exactly, and it's brilliant. Because Satoshi 
the, the code I would argue just enables the the social net the social sort of like socialness of the money and the game theory behind it. The code just makes that all work well. The code really you know is more Frankenstein from a bunch of old code over the last thirty years. It's not really like a breakthrough in that. It's a breakthrough in human incentives. Right. Which is magnificent. It shows that Satoshi actually understands humans better than like code. Exactly. Which is really cool. Do you talk to any uh, Bitcoin developer who's very familiar with the code base? They'll they'll be the first to tell you like Satoshi was a shit developer. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he had a big bug initially, right? Like where you could um, essentially mess with the supply. Yeah, the inflation bug. Um, it got exploited. In 2011, or was it 2013? It was 2011. Well, there 2011 was the block reward that was like a billion, but it got fixed because Coinbase was never paid out ever 100 blocks. And also, Bitcoin had no value then. Yes. So it was sort of immaterial. Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe there's like a thousand people (laughs) working on it at that time. Yeah. No, and I would um, encourage all you freaks out there listening to this to go to the Nakamoto. uh, Excuse me, NakamotoInstitute.org. And check out the complete Satoshi. And if you go through the emails uh, of 2011, you can see how they handled this bug. And it was literally like an email, like, please upgrade, like, version, whatever it was. Yeah, everyone should go read Satoshi's early writing. And often, with almost all my articles, I quote Satoshi at least once. He thought about a lot of these things. Um, so, I, you know, people go, oh, well, Satoshi didn't think of this or that. Well, actually, he thought a lot of, about this. You should go read and, and see his thoughts directly. Now, don't hold it as, like... The gospel. Holy Grail, the gospel, yeah. Like, this is just, if you want some insight on as to how the original guy who made this all happen, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting context. Now that's, um, that's another re- recurring topic is you go back to BitcoinTalk.org, too, and find uh, conversations being rehashed today that, that, were re- that were hashed out seven years ago, right? And the, the one oh, thing, yeah. So, like, Hal with Bitcoin, <laughs> Hal wrote the concept of Bitcoin banks, like uh, Bitcoin as a as settlement layer in like 2010. Dude, yeah. Hal was super bullish. Right. Hal predicted like 10 to 100 trillion market cap for Bitcoin when almost no one even thought that was possible. Yeah. And he also, not only was he bullish, but he was prescient enough to sort of mentally uh, see how this would progress and realize that Bitcoin probably isn't uh, at the, the protocol level probably isn't going to enable coffee purchases but oh yeah the bitcoin banks yeah, yeah that that centralization uh, look you know it's all about efficiency right and you can't put everything on the blockchain we're finally i think the community crypto community as a whole has finally realized that putting everything on the blockchain is not the way to do it and so bitcoin is about maximal efficiency of compressing data and storing it on chain of only the most valuable data and i think that's incredibly intelligent and the right way to go and, and we've seen that largely validated by the market by the market validated by the market and then also validated by other projects which are starting to, t- yeah. to uh, adopt bitcoin's narratives <laughs> ethereum in particular is starting to really hone in on moneyness and uh and being a sound money in particular. yeah you've got uh vitalik talking about a hard cap you know that was i think it it was published on uh was it the uh, April's April Fools, but it wasn't a joke. And you see a couple of different individuals in the space, like Spencer Noon and a few others, trying to meme it into existence. Um, but it's sort of like watching your uncle like dance the Macarena. It just <laughs> it just looks fucking weird, you know. It's like, wait, I thought you were a, a world computer, DAP platform, DeFi, and now you want to be a sound money. And then you you were talking about uh, crypto kitties in the blockchain last year, and now you want to talk about 
Keynes, uh, like Austrian versus Keynesian economics and the virtues of a hard cap, like welcome to my world. I've been here for the last seven years or last decade, you know, like, okay. And then, and then you're going to FUD on, oh, will Bitcoin security model work long term? Will transaction fees replace a lot of Ethereum people? This is why I wrote this. A lot of, the, a lot of Ethereum people use this as like, oh, Bitcoin hasn't figured out its security long term. And when I dug in, I'm like, wait a second. Actually, it, it, it's fine. It's trending just as, as a market would. It's trending in the right direction. And, and a lot of them are being really extremely disingenuous when I'm like, you're worried about Bitcoin security model and you haven't even figured out your monetary policy. And you've got a bunch of nerdy engineers in a room who come up with the inflation rate at a whim. And you're worried about Bitcoin's very stable, predictable, set in stone monetary policy. Get out of here. Like you're just, you're just, you're fudding for just to, just to throw fud on Bitcoin. You're not actually having an intelligent debate. No, uh, you're grasping at straws and then let's look at facts. So like the, my favorite dominance indicator that's, uh, been rising. We talked about this on rabbit hole recap this week. Uh, if you look at percentage of uh fees paid to miners overall across the cryptocurrency space um as a dominance index bitcoin is 92 percent dominant like 92 percent of mining fees are from the bitcoin network ethereum's at eight percent but if you want to talk like dominance and and actually how secure your your blockchain is bitcoin is far and away the most it, dominant chain. it's the bitcoin double standard fees are too high <laughs> it, fees are too high people won't use bitcoin fees are too low people aren't using bitcoin enough <laughs> bitcoin can't win you know people are like oh well pe- fees are too high fees are too low fees are fine fees are just a a a, a metric that quantifies people using and, and requiring transactions to be validated in a certain amount of scarce real estate like it's yeah. fine no they're fine and they're they're obviously working like bitcoin is attracting the the most hash power because it is going to be the most profitable for people's paying for that hardware. Yeah. And, that, and there's that, the flywheel effect that makes Bitcoin's block space very unique, where as the security becomes higher then demand for the block space increases due to its thermodynamic guarantee that that transaction will not be reversed. Yeah. And which that's why I love to frame it as a thermodynamic guarantee because that's what it is. It's it, the laws of physics come into play. That's what's so beautiful about Bitcoin is it uses a brilliant architecture of all these seemingly simple ideas, but when you put them together, it's incredibly brilliant. Using provably burnt energy in the real world to validate and protect something in the digital one. Satoshi not only knew cryptography, economics, computer science, but also physics and game theory and human behavior. And I think that that's what makes it so thrilling and compelling. And, and that's the only way to evaluate crypto networks as a whole is we should view them holistically. And when Ethereum people or other projects go develop, you know, the sweaty Steve Ballmer, developers, 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 I'm like, yes, I like developers too. But, but we must also think about other things as well that make this all work. Yeah, it's, um, and I always go back to the analogy of Bitcoin just being the sort of source. I always, in my mind, I don't know, this is a weird visualization, but the way I visualize it is like the Bitcoin blockchain is something analogous to uh what existed in sumerian times where there was a town center where you would go and you would uh you would basically uh you would 
you would inscribe your your debits and credits, and you would go to a center center of town to basically balance the books of yeah uh, de- debit and credit. I view Bitcoin as uh, not a personification, but like a, a mechanized ver- mechanized version of that. Excuse me, it's like a pillar of light that exists in the center of town that anybody can come to and just totally. anchor in. Like, hey, I'm doing this right now. I'm doing this right now, and you just you go to the well and you say, hey. Um, I'm transacting right now. It's going here, and that's all you have to worry about. That's how easy it is. Simple it is. It's the ledger that everyone looks at. Exactly, and this is it, this goes back to narratives and simplicity and stuff like that. And so, like Bitcoin is just being like stored digital money and being that pillar in the center of town that anybody can go to and transact in is very simple. And like you talk about, like so Ethereum in particular right now, they're trying to mean programmable money into into existence and, and, and think that's going to yeah. lead to mass adoption. And Quantum Narratives was an article I wrote before this most recent one, which is around the ebb and flow of narratives in the crypto space. And the quantum part is that, uh, you know, Schrodinger's cat is essentially where the, the, uh, the thought experiment is you have a cat in a box and it's got this radioactive material. If the box is sealed and you can't see, you can't observe the cat, the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. Essentially, states that are unobserved can be in multiple states at once until observed. My argument is that, my analogy that I make is that narratives in the crypto world similarly can exi- coexist and be in this kind of foamy state where world computer, DeFi, uh, Uber on the blockchain can all, call it, all exist until critically observed. And then... The wave function collapses upon reality. What is real? What is the state that is the actual physical state versus all these possible states that it could be? All these possible narratives that it, blockchain tech could be. And what we saw in 2018 is that collab- collapsing of the narrative. The collapsing of all these different narratives or all these different quantum states into what's real. And we see that collapse upon store of value. And we see the Ethereum crowd realizing that and trying to pivot the meme, pivot the narrative into that as that quantum state collapses. No, it's it's been hilarious to watch unfold. And again, like going back to, to me at least as an, an outside observer, somebody's actually I've been following Ethereum's progression pretty intently for a while now, just because I'm infinitely curious about and fascinated by the the social uh, sort of phenomena that it is. But uh, if we're talking like memes and and uh, if effective memes in particular, I think them clinging to programmable money is like hilarious because I don't think that's an effective meme because programmable no. money, you, you go to like the people who are most likely to use these assets. And again, Bitcoin and other crypto currencies, their, their main purpose is to, um, is to, um, is to be there as a last resort, like to, to be the store of value when, when your government or uh, central authority is trying to censor you. Um, and it's, really like last last resort sort of value so like programmable money like going after the people who need that which is rich people are probably an older cohort and don't understand computer science or anything like that they hear programmable money are like what well, i have to program my money i just can't like keep it in totally here. vitalik is i would argue a more brilliant marketer than he is an engineer which he's also a very smart guy like but he was brilliant world computer marketing. was great oh fantastic meme Silicon Valley bought it hook, line, and sinker. Um, you know, none of Silicon Valley ever Googled him and realized, oh, he tried to build a Bitcoin quantum miner before that. Quantum miner is raising money for it, freaks. Yeah, but but no Silicon Valley VC has ever Googled that and, and actually read that. So, Due diligence. 
Nobody does due diligence anymore. Johnny Dilly said this to me. Totally. Nobody yeah. does due diligence. Well, hey, no one ever got fired for buying an IBM. Same thing with like if Goldman Sachs <laughs> went on something or there's a lot of great Silicon Valley VCs. And if they invested in something and you invested alongside them, then you're not wrong. So Vitalik per- perfectly crafted Ethereum's narrative to resonate with Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, it was irresistible. It was what every single baby boomer VC wanted and what every single engineer in, in Silicon Valley wanted as well. For the baby boomer VCs, it was the decentralized internet they, they had imagined during the 1990s and early 2000s. It's what they always had wanted. Aligning, incent- aligning incentives, common standards, uh, decentralized, you know, it was everything that they had ever wanted. And then for engineers, it was the recognition to be recognized for your efforts and to now my shiny code could be published and then I could make money off my shiny code that has no use case, but it validates that I b- built really cool shiny code. Um, and then we've seen that largely become unraveled in 2018, right? As people woke up to reality, which is that like, well, all companies have to solve or all protocols have to solve a problem. Does your protocol have protocol market fit, like product market fit? And from a classic product mindset, I mean, that's what I applied. I'm not a Look, I'm a Bitcoin realist. <laughs> I thought this stuff was cool. I mined Prime Coin. I fly drones for fun. And I've signed up with the same facility with uh, Hal Finney for cryonics. I'm being cryopreserved when I die. Boss. I'm a pretty weird guy. Like, I like to check out all this stuff. But what? Yeah, from a product mindset, what problem are we solving? And, and how does a blockchain elegantly solve that problem? And again, going back to what I was saying earlier, of I like to think that I'm going to represent representative of the masses to the point where like i only use three apps like it, when you make the the switching and the 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 mental cost of interacting with your system so high we have to think of like token economics and and crypto economics and uh, like thinking of something like MakerDAO where where you have like interest rates moving at any given point in time it's like ah, i don't i don't see how this makes it past a certain demographic right also like you know I ran into Cyrus in person, the chief risk officer at Maker. You know, him and I have Twitter Twitter battles, which also I would, if he ever hears this, I would encourage him to go and actually, uh, he was a big, big uh, fudster on Bitcoin security model long term. So I think he should, you know, read my article because he was one of the ones I tagged in it because, because he was, you know, really focused on, uh, oh, this is a big issue. And I met him in person. It was nice that he said hi. You know, I, I liked, you know, even with the people I debate with on Twitter, I like to say hi in person. So I appreciated him coming and saying hi. But, you know, him being the chief risk officer, like, these are incredibly complicated game theoretic sort of things. Like, I don't even know if the smartest people in the world put in a room could figure this stuff out, you know. So, like, I hope he, I hope he succeeds, but it's very, very hard. That and on top of that, like... <sighs> So again, so MakerDAO in particular, for you freaks that don't know, they they have a, a, a an interest rate that's not set by the market, not set by any mechanism. It's voted by committee, and they've been raising that interest rate to help pull the 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 peg of die to the dollar up closer to the dollar for the last several months because of liquidity. I don't want to say problems, but to deal with liquidity stuff. Yeah, essentially maintain the peg. Exactly, um, but it's like. Going, what was I gonna say? Yeah. Like make her down, but, but like. But the risk, risk, and oh, here's what out, I was yeah. gonna say. Like, so all these DeFi, so like DeFi taking over the world. There's five hundred million dollars locked up in DeFi or whatever the meme is right now. Like, 
in my mind, it's just these enthusiasts using these products and pumping these products. It's not real use cases. It's it's people who wanted to succeed using it, but not out of utility, more out of altruistic, I want to make this a thing. Like, oh, and, and I want to highlight something very important here, which is that, uh, which me and Elizabeth Stark have been very vocal about this, Lightning is not DeFi. Like DeFi is a meme that Ethereum created to propagate. What is DeFi? What is radical markets? You what know, is decentralized, decentralized finance? finance. I mean, it's if all, it's I all g- memeing. If I give you a yeah. loan, is that decentralized finance? It's all just memeing something into existence for typically for their financial benefit or for their product well, success. Well, let's try to let's try to define decentralized finance the way they believe it is. Like, what is it at the end well, of the day? Like, I think something important to highlight though is that when you go to a DeFi website and they compare Lightning. The chan- like the amount of money locked up in lightning channels compared to DeFi, that is not an appropriate analogy for many reasons. One is that you're comparing stock versus flow, mm-hmm. which is completely disingenuous. So um, Elizabeth and I have been very vocal about this because we think it is more of like a subversion technique by the DeFi community to lump, a theor- uh, lump, lump lightning into there and be like, oh, look, we're beating lightning. No, it's not about that. Lightning is about flow. It's highly experimental. There are limits to how much you can even lock up in a channel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and so, so they're, they're comparing it to Lightning. Right now, like. Yeah, and like all these guys are comparing, like, they're like, oh, look how much is Maker versus Lightning. DeFi, DeFi Ethereum, DeFi is like, like beating, beating Lightning on Bitcoin. And it's like, no, we're being responsible. This is very risky. We take our Bitcoiners, while they may seem harsh and, and very like, well, Lightning, Lightning, I would argue, is, is inherently less risky because there's no leverage involved. That you're I don't disagree. I think Bitcoiners are more genuine about how much risk you're taking on interacting with protocols, whereas like Ethereum DeFi is YOLO. And and look, that I get that. I come from Sil- like I, I've been in Silicon Valley for seven years. Built early small mobile products. I worked at Uber. I get it. Like don't ask for permission, beg for forgiveness. Servers catch on fire. That's a good thing. But not with decentralized rocket launches. Like those have to be perfect, right. and you cannot just YOLO it. It is. I, I like experimental stuff. I'm, a, I'm an open-minded guy, but you gotta be precise about this. You gotta be. You, you have to be open about the risks. Where lightning, like reckless, was the meme, right? Versus like, you know, now 20% interest rates are really high for these loans for for Maker. I mean, and on top of like 150% collateralization, like there's a lot of Ethereum people who are like, whoa, whoa, wait a second, are like, are the interest rates are super high on these now, and a lot of people are getting cop like. They're getting they're they're surprised by this interest rate jump and and rightly so I I didn't expect this either, whereas like in Bitcoin it's like, you know, this is reckless. Don't put your money in it. <laughs> exactly. Well, and another thing with Maker in particular is like a lot of people thought that interest rate was mechanized, and I was actually surprised to see that people didn't realize it was an interest rate by committee. Like the like, it's it's literally what we're trying to get away from. Like a Federal Reserve like twelve person committee sets yeah. the Fed funds rate. What's That's, the right What's the right rate of risk? That's really, really, really hard to determine and something I'm going to touch later this year, touch on later this year. You know, after I decided, you know, there's a lot of different things you can cover in research. Digging deep into Bitcoin will tell you, will answer almost all of your questions. I learned a lot digging into it myself. Why do you say that? Because you learn about the trade-offs made that Satoshi thought through. You learn about like basic trade-offs for blockchain tech. You learn about human behavior. And, and, and like, for example, proof of work versus proof of stake, uh, 
Well, that's the other thing with Ethereum too. Like, if, if that's what I wanted to mention earlier when I forgot is uh, with the the transaction spend. Um, excuse me, the the uh, miner fee spend dominance index with Bitcoin at ninety two, and Ethereum in a far second at eight percent. But like, even they can't use that set. They can't even say like, "Hey, we're number two. Like, we're like behind Bitcoin. We're we're the second best like blockchain from a from a proof of work fee perspective because they plan on moving the proof of stake like <laughs> they can't even like use that right. as an advantage because well they would have be, as a meme that exactly that would be like that would be basically undermining their the future roadmap that they have right i thought it was actually interesting to see ethereum having transactional demand on layer one like exactly. quite extensively it makes sense with all the dApps on there right like yeah but it also like highlights have you ever looked at the median uh, transaction fee no <laughs> it's, it's very very low <laughs> like like almost zero they're actually the median is zero i think um Median being like the most common, mm-hmm. not the average. And uh, yeah, I actually emailed Nick Carter about it. He's like, emailed Nick Carter. I was like, hey, I think CoinMetrics is has an, a data issue. He's like, oh yeah, because it's median. It's the av- It's the it's the it's the uh, essentially the most common value. So what does that say? Yeah, the the demand for the block space isn't isn't as isn't high as Bitcoin's. High. Yeah. yeah, the the demand for that and put in, put how in, do they even have eight percent of that dominance index? Though? Put like. in put in other words, the demand for that real estate. Well, the median is 0%. Like, who's paying the higher fees and what for? I don't know. I, I don't spend a lot of time digging into those okay, transactions. This goes back to my point. Like, I think Ethereum's a chain for enthusiasts who want to make something happen that probably will not work out. Like, and experimentation's great. People should go try things, you know? And uh, that's where, like, you know, there are, like, as a Bitcoiner, I have, I have been through this space a long time and seen a lot of different things come and go. And I, I've approached it from a product and rational mindset of like, what problem are we solving? How does it solve it? Survivability, probability of surviving, game theory. Game theory. Bitcoin's in a great spot. It's fantastic. I've never been more bullish. We're in an awesome spot. And after digging into proof of work, so proof of work is efficient is my most popular article. Digging into distribution, digging into hodlers being the core lifeblood behind what makes these protocols work is the shared illusion or shared belief in the system that really breathes life into it. And to look at narratives, quantum narratives, to look at the origins of Bitcoin with planting Bitcoin, to look at Bitcoin's security model. After digging into all of these, it's it's hard to be excited about other things because they, they make such horrible trade-offs. You're like, well, and I'm not talking about Ethereum, I'm just talking about in general. You make such horrible trade-offs. I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I just can't be excited about this. No, and I want to harp on... We said with the shared illusion, I've been coming more and more convinced that this is not even a shared illusion. Like money at the end of the day, like Bitcoin, like going back to our conversation in the beginning of the podcast of uh, other store value assets having intrinsic value that can be tapped, uh, that can be utilized other places like Bitcoin like is actually a tool. It is it is something that exists in like the shared the shared illusion quote the quote unquote shared illusion of a store of value uh in the past may have been a shared illusion but like now we have like a tool it's not an illusion it it exists it is a vehicle through which we can we can store this wealth and, and, I, and I think illusion's kind of a strong word that I use for that cuz some yeah. people think illusion they think oh fabrication yeah but the shared belief, it's, I think, maybe um, a stronger word for let it. Me, let me find the... Uh, no, it's not belief. It's uh, shared recognition. Uh, shared recognition. recognition. I like that. That's yes. a new meme. I like it. Shared recognition. That, that's that much is, more solid than the yes, other ones. The shared recognition that this is a useful tool 
This is um. I need to give credit where credit is due. I did not come yeah. up with this. Let me. And, and, and words are important. How we phrase this and how we communicate this to the next wave of adherents or believers in Bitcoin is key. And that's something I, I I spend my free time on is like how do we bring in the next wave? How do we make the narrative compressed enough? Look, I'm I'm a I'm a big libertarian, so sound money makes sense to me. But how do we explain sound money to maybe my brother who's not uh he's not a he's not in really into this stuff, right? He's a geologist. You know, maybe more of like financial consent or fair money or free money. Like it's freedom money. Like yeah. that's what it free really speech is. Money. After speaking with free speech money. Free speech money really exactly. resonates. And then shared recognition over shared illusion. I think is uh, very powerful. And shout out to Richard Bensberg. Nice. Who Good job, Richard. That. That, uh, that came out. Me, Neil Woodfine from Blockstream. And oh, him, Neil's great. And Matt O'Dell got drinks uh, this week. And we, we really honed in on shared recognition over shared illusion. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, totally. I, I, and I think like when I got into it, there was Bitcoin talk and Reddit. And then mm-hmm. it, that moved to Twitter and, and Medium. We're iterating on different channels to communicate with people with it. And right now we're on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And Marty does a great job. Thank you, sir. One of the few podcasts I actually listen to. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah. Well, it's only it's only a thing because of people like you come and, uh, come and get drunk with me to talk about stuff. <laughs> we're, we're totally tober here. <laughs> totally tober. Uh, what's, what's the officer problem? We only drank a half bottle, bottle of vodka. But I'm super excited about the people that come after me and, and you, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, well, we've we've had like you know Joe Rogan like talk to Andreas and like Andreas is one of the few who was early in his communication style that was preserved through time. Whereas as we saw, like Roger dropped out of favor due to, due to his intellectual dishonesty well, and also. Like, I'll push back a little bit. Andreas was was very big on like feeless transaction or like instant that was, that was stuff. the meme back then. I was that there was too. The he yeah. he clung on to the meme, and I was the first PM at blockchain. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember the meme, but I was still like wait no one's using this <laughs> no and that's like so that's another topic of conversation that i got uh onto with david bailey is 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 and again this is this came out this weekend like this weekend like segue to x battles being rehashed on twitter and it's at some point like bitcoiners in particular like hardcore bitcoiners have to realize you don't want to become like the hardcore leftists in America who uh, say if you do not believe in this and this and this and this and you don't you don't check all the boxes you are not on our team you are an outcast like I'm, I, I worry that Bitcoiners like turn into that like if you don't believe this this and this and this you are not in Bitcoin anymore like you I, we have to be careful that we do not become uh, the 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 fanatical crazy. Uh, people who are trying to dictate uh, conversation. And stuff it's a, like it's that. a tricky balance, right? right? Because we have to adhere to our core beliefs. Yes. But also... You have to let people make mistakes. Yes, exactly. And so that's where, like, I don't fault people for, like, look, I mined PrimeCoin. Look, I'm Dan Heddle. I mined PrimeCoin. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I experimented with it. It was interesting. I didn't sacrifice my, my great BTC for it, but I tried it. You know, I, I thought about it. And they keep coming back to Bitcoin over the last seven years. So it, it's uh, it's okay to think about other things. It's okay to explore it. But like, um, and I believe in reconciliation as well. As much as I dislike Roger, Roger did buy, buy, buy my first company. And I've DM'd, DM'd him a little bit on this, but, and I think he's pretty much set on his direction. 
But if he came back and apologized, and apologized, actually apologized, I think it'd be good if we like said, okay, sure, I believe in reconciliation. Uh, but I, I find it very unlikely that he will apologize. I, I think it's almost impossible. But if he did, I, w- I would probably be like, all right, Roger, I'll give you a chance. I'll give you a shot. Yeah. Everyone makes mistakes. But, and you did, a, you did some terrible damage to Bitcoin. No, but I'm not trying to even like provide cover for anybody. I'm, I'm just trying yeah, to, let's, let's be realist here. Like, and I've said, this is another topic of conversation on this podcast a lot. Bitcoin is an expanding universe that we discover every, every day as, as more activity happens on the network, as, as more blocks are produced. Like we expand the limitation. We, excuse me, we discover the limitations and, uh, the, the ways in which this network will be used and you can't fault people this early on in Bitcoin's lifetime for, for, for having assumptions that were proven wrong. Like that's going to happen. <laughs> Again, Connor Brown comes up here. Connor Brown said at first I was a B casher and you know, he, he read deep into it and then he realized, Oh, wait a second. Actually I'm a little bit off the mark here, mm-hmm. but it takes a little while. You know, people think about, Oh, well is Bitcoin the MySpace versus the Facebook? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and rightly so they should, they should, they should examine it using the mental models that they have. Um, and our best bet for Bitcoin is to make the, the, the narrative for Bitcoin so simple and easy to digest that when they begin their journey into crypto, they find our content, they read it and they're like, Oh wow. Okay. This is really, really, this is insightful. And that's how they, they then go evaluate everything else. That's our best bet is through knowledge, information sharing, quality information. Exactly. And that, that's what I like to, uh, hopefully I write, you know, this, this last article was very lengthy. I apologize. I, I normally write it much more succinctly. It was a very, very good flowing read. It was 20 minutes, but it did not feel like it. And I stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I didn't come up with all this stuff. I, I cite people in there and there's some people that additionally like provided insight. This is very much a community thing. I'm just trying to distill the narrative to be comprehensive. Same with my proof of work article. Like that was largely a lot of other people's thoughts, including Paul Storks. Like, you know, I had to reread his article three times because he's very eloquent. Reread but, uh, it three times. It's like eight hours of your day. He writes yeah. like two hour blogs. <laughs> well, he, he uses, uh, you know, very big SAT words. Um, whereas I try to make things a little bit more understandable for the layman. So, yeah, I think we're, we're I th- and what I'm really excited about is in the future, I think the narrative will be so compressed that we'll have that like aha moments when like consensual money or something like that, like yeah. a, a meme like that, right? Like even the leftists on the West Coast, that makes sense to them. You have consent over your body. I think free speech money is, is the strongest right now. Well, like we're, we're going to, what's great about Bitcoin's marketing is that we have a decentralized marketing approach. You right. meme free speech money. I mean consent money mm-hmm. and we'll see which one resonates with our target audience yeah, yeah. and then whichever one works is either one either one's great win-win for both of us precisely yeah it's it's incredibly exciting I, I come from a like my my core role in tech has been growth growth products and growth marketing and uh, same with actually Peter McCormick and and, and pomp so oh, yeah. if you notice how yeah they oh. understand how memes work they understand how narratives work so that's that's the interesting thing here at TFTC we don't have like typical marketing backgrounds trying to figure that out like <laughs> we have stacking like we uh, I think Dude, stacking we're good sats is awesome that's stacking a good sats meme. um Wait, oh lolly dude lolly by the way awesome the lolly pump the lolly pump guild we're all a part of the lolly pump guild pump it um if you're buying anything online make sure that you're checking to see if the merchant that you're buying from is from lolly why wouldn't you want cash back? And they're in not Bitcoin? even not from Lolly. Excuse me, is uh, has a partnership with Lolly where you can get cash back in Bitcoin. And for the listeners that have made it this far, Lolly is great for newbies. 
because Bitcoin is perceived for, for you know by your friends and family as magic internet money. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get them to take their dollars and buy Bitcoin. But when they earn Bitcoin through just buying things they normally would, I've seen this and I've been trying to get people into Bitcoin for seven years. This is one of the most powerful ways to get people into Bitcoin because it, they get it for free. What have you seen in particular? What are the reactions? Uh, you know, there was uh, a, a couple of friends of mine to where like, I was like, hey, by the way, before you buy stuff online, you use this Chrome extension. And they're like, whoa, oh, I can just earn like this magic internet money, aka Bitcoin, for free when I go shopping online. And I, I don't want to like overly generalize who that group might be, but people who like to shop online a lot. I think it's great because like they get it for free and you know while as mark twain says to make a man or woman covet a thing all you have to do is make it hard to obtain they still it is the aha moment where they at least have it they may have not have had to obtain it very hardly because uh, very like very it was effortlessly sort of obtained but at least they have it now mm-hmm. and that now they pay attention to it and then maybe they'll commit some more of their dollars to it later right it's a little it's a little uh, foothold <sighs> It's it's uh, so the man who helped me start start this podcast, Lewis uh, Roberts, formerly from Barstool, uh, now the CEO and founder of Any Day Rose. Um, but he nice. he is Rose all day, Rose all day, baby. He is a huge uh, believer in Lolly, and he's somebody who uh, in my life has really opened me. Like he is in my eyes like somebody who gets like the mass marketing and and how to to sort of hone into the the given sort of theme and vibe of pop culture at the time and he is convinced somebody who's seen some pretty pretty good trends play out barstool being one of them um he looks at lolly is like this is the way to get in the hands of the masses like i'm I'm just earning it like you know i was at change tip back in 2015 and we did the micropayments over social media r.i.p change tip that was my favorite way to send people bitcoin for the first time like hey thanks send uh i have i have tweets uh, <laughs> nice, like so at at, at change shape. So I have uh, <laughs> shout out Zuki underscore Chaylock. <laughs> Actually, uh, photo cred for my avatar from him as well. But he uh, he's the first person I ever sent a, a chain shift to a buddy from oh, Chicago, awesome. buddy from DePaul that I chain shift with. To, yeah, it's trying try to make Bitcoin transactions fun. It's not. It's more than a like. It's more than a favorite. It's like a little attachment of send value. him a beer and like you designate yeah. what the price of a beer is. Yeah, like four dollar beer, and you're yeah. like, here's a beer, bro. And yeah. you do a little beer emoji and a cheers. Yeah. Um, no, a little too early. Wrong timing. Bitcoin 2015 winter was very, very harsh. Mm-hmm. It was very, very cold. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's so many cool ways to stack sats now. I actually, after trying Lolly, I went down the rabbit hole. Which one? Stacking sats. <laughs> oh, yeah. Stack, hashtag? Uh, Stacking sats, but the products okay. around like how to maximize efficiency. So, so what's cool about Lolly is what they do is they take the referral fee that they get by referring traffic from Lolly to the uh, merchant website. And they split that referral fee with you. Now, this isn't a new concept. There's Ebates as well and a few others that do this. So Lolly Lolly was birthed out of the Ebates team. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's cool is like not only should you do that, but with your credit card, you already get 1% to 4% back. So that compounds on top of that. So we're talking about, you know, Lolly, it's 3.5% to 9%. That's plus your credit card, and there's actually other ways. Turn a little bit more stats. Let's jump in. Or sorry, sorry, stats. Um, <laughs> uh, let's so the Tito's uh, the Tito's is, is feeling pretty <laughs> nice right now. 
There's an app called Pay, P-E-I. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even going to show my referral code. I've just been trying it out. You can stack on top of that. How so? On like Lyfts and Ubers. So what they do is like they work with Lyft and Uber and other companies to like be incentivized to essentially like you, you connect your credit card accounts. So you are giving up some of your data. To be explicit, you are giving up some of your data. And you're getting paid for it, I assume. But you're getting paid for it. And that's like a 1% to 3% on top of Lolly and credit cards. So we're talking like triple stacked, triple stack sats. And that's uh, that's what we aim to do here is to educate you freaks on how to stack sats most efficiently and most uh, into compound sats as, as efficiently as possible. Compound those those those. Pay P E Y P E I P E I. I've been playing around with it a little bit, you know, and, and you're digging a little bit more, but so far it's worked. And they give you rebate in Bitcoin, so that's where like there there are other ones who don't give you rebate in Bitcoin, which I won't mention. I'm just talking about the Bitcoin ones. So you got Lolly plus Pay. Gives you a little bit more, which Boss. is kind of cool. Compound oh. the stacking freaks. Yeah. Dan, I'm drunk. Yeah. We've, we've had a good time out here on the roof. It's a, it's such a beautiful day. It's hard not to like talk for... We could talk for another three hours if we wanted to. We've got plenty of time. What uh, is there anything else in particular you want to talk about? or? Let's see. So we did cover the meme of alt, alt season, but there's another one. Oh, the risk off trade. Oh, yes. Let's yes. jump into this. Is it real? Well, I was quoted on CNN as to... <laughs> I still have seen it. Um, well, it, so, I mean, okay, I have waited seven years. So Bitcoin is, is definitively a risk on trade that whole time. It's very risky. Uh, actually, the altcoin bubble in 2017 was largely because of the, the riskiness of the mainstream financial world. People are chasing yield, and that was like the final bubbly top. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bitcoin was purpose-built to be the gold 2.0, the store value, the safe haven, the asset. safe haven asset. When you don't trust anyone else, as Satoshi put it, the core problem is with central banks, and he's right. And that's why he purpose-built Bitcoin, implanted that seed in the middle of the financial crisis. Bitcoin, amongst you know, amongst everything else, is a vote for yourself, a vote for freedom, a vote for a vote for like a non-correlated asset that you can store your value in. And so we're starting to see tremors in the mainstream financial world. And on Monday this week, during Blockchain Week, the mainstream markets uh, dipped significantly and Bitcoin went up 10%. And there's a few other publications alongside CNN, which I was quoted in, talking about Bitcoin becoming the risk-off trade, uh, including Pomp, um, Pomp and a few others, and Ari Paul. I've been talking about this for a while, that I believe that this meme could come, <coughs> come into existence by accident. Markets dip, mainstream markets dip, Bitcoin goes up. That coincidentally happens three or four days in a row. People talk about it becoming the risk off trade and then it becomes that. But that's what it's made for. So it's not lying. It's it's just like finally making it a thing. It's finally making it like what it was always meant to be. No, and the uh so like the huge debate around this topic in particular this week is 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 this price uh price pop co- coinciding with the the uh, fall off in equities and uh, depreciation of the Chinese yuan correlation, or not correlation, and not causation. So the uh, way that I phrased it is that for for a moment we saw a glimmer that Bitcoin might be the risk off trade because also that trading volume was largely dictated by institutional money. That and the, let's talk about 
the the conditions which led to this trade this price action in particular and it's again the trade war with china and so that's when i worked at the managed futures fund that's a lot of what i covered was currency markets trading currency markets and uh basically as a result of this trade war trade wars basically result in a race to depreciate your currency as much as possible to make your exports as palatable as possible to the rest of the world who would have guessed people would flee or flock to a safe store of value when a president is largely dictating the economies of the two biggest economies in the world yes the two biggest and most intertwined economies in the world don't trust verify (laughs) i choose to put my trust in mathematics yeah well but you look at so in so let's try to be as um, try to be as scientific as possible not scientific science not (laughs) as scientific as possible but um we don't know if this is like a risk on trade, but here's the scenario that happened. Like this, the trade war heats up, tariffs become uh, more intense in the mainstream and like more threatened on on China. And basically, what happens is you see number one, uh, there's a there's a medallion in Hong Kong, and the price of that went up precipitously. And that medallion is typically used by Chinese nationals to store capital through which they can get it out of out of the country. Uh, on top of that, you have the yuan devaluing against the dollar, and then Bitcoin appreciating pretty heavily uh, against that. Uh, while all this is going on, equities are are going down as well. So, if you're you're a short-term trader and you're looking at this one-day, two-day movement, it looks like they were they were they were moving inversely. Um, again, correlation is not causation, but it, I do think it was uh, a first little shot across the bow of, of international markets like yo this well, could be a safe haven play yeah and this is the first time where institutional money by volume led this price movement that is what's interesting and that's where i think the meme does have some justification as being real is that you know this is this isn't um this isn't back in 2014 2016 where it's all retail traders this is cme volume is what led this market that that's what's important. The C- CME vo- volume went up like 10x, like exactly th- its highest day ever. Institutional money, and and Ari Paul and a lot of the experts, like a lot of the big crypto hedge funds. Even Lawmaster came out. Even uh, <laughs> even the, the Larry uh, Larry <laughs> Larry Cermak, yeah. even the uh, the staunch uh, skeptic came out like, yo, this was actually led by serious inflows into institutional. Yep from institutional clients excuse me i've waited seven years to see this moment <laughs> right to see the moment where like the largest players this is the game of thrones which tonight is the season finale or the the series finale right series finale this is the final game this is the real game bitcoin survived to made it to the final game of the game like this isn't this isn't the amateur league so, anymore so let's say it arrived and this happens is this just an anomaly this one one off one day two day do you think it'll take more time for this to become common or does it it'll take a long time yeah but but at least we made it to the final round right and i'm still hodling (laughs) the fact that we made it this long and it survived and like we're thriving and there's all these companies being built and and that may like you've got ex wall street guys memeing that bitcoin is a risk off trade and that is gold 2.0 like we did it like that's the meme. Like that's, and it, it, it's what Bitcoin was purpose built for ten years ago. Well, that's what it was made for. This isn't like a, a fake meme. This isn't a, an, a, an attempt to make a meme. This is this is what it was made for. Bitcoin. By hodling, you will be set free. By by hodling, 
everyone in the world doesn't have to worry about the politics of is AOC going to be elected or is Trump going to be elected. You just, you vote for yourself. You vote for, in a world of uncertainty, you vote for you. And that's what every human should do because you are a free human no matter where you live. And you deserve to be free. And you deserve, yes, thank you for saying this. Because this is, I actually got into a debate with a friend this week about the concept of collectivism versus individuality. Like the world is losing the concept of individuality, picking yourself up from your bootstraps, taking care of yourself. And Socialism be- is at an all-time high. Yeah. Um, as Deutsche Bank's A Journey into the Unknown report puts, which, by the way, every Bitcoiner should read this report. It's fantastic. 800 years of financial history. If you really want to know why Bitcoin's valuable, look at this. They don't mention Bitcoin once. But when they look out, when they zoom out to all financial history, we are truly in a journey in the unknown. And that's a, like, including socialism or populism. Those are an all-time highs compared to right before World War II. The most equivalent time period is right before World War II. Now, I don't think we're going to see major wars like that happen again. I think, I think Bitcoin provides uh, the first opportunity for a bloodless, peaceful revolution. Absolutely. Bitcoin is inherently peaceful because you voluntarily choose to put your money into something that can't be that's very hard to seize and is immutable and by doing that you do it in a non-violent way bitcoin is very much agrees like with the non-aggression principle and like the adherence to voluntary action and that's what freedom is about is like people should choose if they want to or not yeah and it's uh it's funny because it feels like people don't want to don't want to have that decision. They want they want it to be decided for them. And Unfortunately, we've seen the state start to dictate largely our tolerance for risk with the Federal Reserve. We've seen our state dictate our tolerance for security, which is like TSA, and freedoms, uh, gun policies, etc. And that's where I think, you know, hopefully Bitcoin, because money is one of the most important things in the world, because it is the representation of all the stored collective time and energy and and, and energy. Hopefully that changes the, 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 the dynamic of other freedoms because it's the most compressed version of our freedom stored into a, a simple unit value. But I hope that that brings us greater freedom across all things, uh, speech, thought, um, privacy, everything else. I, I, that's where Alex Gladstein and I are a good buddy of mine from San Francisco. He's uh, the chief strategy officer at Human Rights Foundation. Well. You freaks listening to this episode, if you've listened to a couple episodes before this, I'm sure you heard Alex, uh, because we had a great conversation as well. Alex is a huge proponent of freedom across all types of freedom in, in the whole world. You want, you want to talk to somebody who actually understands the, the, the granular problems that each country has. He can spitball you about Yemen, Zimbabwe, Nambia, whatever it may be. He can tell you... The, the crux of the, the, the problem going on, the cause of it, uh, the people in charge, everything. When Alex wrote his Time article, Bitcoin is about freedom, that's when I reached out to him. And since then, we've, we've become pretty good friends. I'm even going to the Oslo Freedom Forum, not for work, for fun. Because I, I, freedom is why I got into Bitcoin a long time ago, seven years ago. It's what I believed in. I'm, I'm a libertarian at heart. The freedom to transact and like... T- Silk Road was a great example of what you could do with that freedom. You don't have to participate in that, but you could. And the idea that you could, to me, I didn't know how the technology worked, but I was like, if it could enable this, this is magical. And then from there, it like hooked me. I had to go learn more about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like we're rediscovering the principles of the Founding Fathers who, 
who wrote the Declaration of Independence in 1776. So hot take here. Founding fathers were about decentralization. Oh, totally. And States' rights? Yeah, that's what I wrote about in the Bent this week is there's a natural entropy that's existed since the Declaration of Independence was signed, right? You had that, that is the peak of freedom in America was literally when we told King George the 8th or 3rd? The 8th. To fuck off and we were our own like free society then and at that point in time we were the most free that we ever will be and since then there's just been a natural entropy of centralization and and loss of freedom and decay of freedom i would argue we are still one of the most free if not the most free country in the world it, but and i still love america we've yeah. got a lot of problems yeah but i love it so much that i want to help try to fix it exactly right? but like, and you, and yeah. you can't get complacent like complacency kills that's another theme totally like in the the in sometimes you have to fight for new freedoms and bitcoin is the, rep- the manifestation of uh, a representation of, of freedom in the digital age and we need to fight for that exactly just because we score a c on the test and everyone scores a d mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we can just like rest and be like okay we're, we did a good job no exactly we're america we're a great country we need to strive for more freedom precisely right? if we see something that provides more freedom that's what america the idea of america is is like all right acquire that and make that in, in every country everybody. in the world i believe in humans yeah. fundamentally that that is who i am i'm, I'm a humanist dan we're uh, we're about to have the step brothers are we just best are we, are we best friends <laughs> now? Can we do a little high five yeah <laughs> and i think this is where we end it because i'm getting drunk yeah it's I, been a great this is two hours this, is, this has been two great hours in. cool um it's always a pleasure like yeah. i said we're we're on a semi-annual uh, schedule right now. Maybe we'll increase that to quarterly. We'll I think quarterly it. might make sense. Yeah. 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 Thanks for having me, Dan. Thanks for joining us on the roof. I hope you enjoyed the Bloody Marys. I'm sorry we ran out of ice. <laughs> um, this is great. Thanks yeah. everyone. Cheers. Peace and love, freaks. Peace.